0: Welcome to World of Gas, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Glenn Weil. Glenn is the Octopest at Microsoft, which stands for Office of chief technology officer, political economist, and social technologist. Whoa! He's also the founder of Radical Exchange Foundation and author of Radical Markets, which is one of the more thought-provoking books on economics. Glenn, welcome to World of DAS.
1: Hey, Aaron, it's great to talk to you.
0: All right, I'm, I'm super excited to dive into uh, quadratic voting, and, and later we can talk about quadratic funding. So I think that's kind of like the better building block but right. for people who aren't for like familiar, kind of with
1: quadratic voting, like how do you, how do you describe it in like the tweet? It's a system for voting where rather than getting one vote on everything, people get a pool of credits to allocate to the things they care most about. But it's more expensive for every additional credit, so it's just kind of exponentially more expensive, quadratically. But yes, yeah, uh, okay. uh yeah, and that um, means that. You, it, you have more incentive to have a little bit of influence on a lot of things than a lot of influence on a few things.
0: Okay. But if you super care about those things, then it makes sense to spend your credits for those particular exactly. types of things.
1: And the particular reason for the quadratic is that it gives you an incentive to vote in proportion to how important things are to you. So you get everyone's votes to be equal to basically how much they care. So rather than doing the majority, you have the greatest good for the greatest number, basically.
0: Walk me through like a credit. So credit system, I've got a total of 100 credits that I could vote on different issues. Let's say it's for corporate governance, for a public company or something like that. Um, instead of like one share per vote for everything, I've got maybe one credit for every share that I own. And then I could spend them based on
1: different things. Is that is that what you're imagining? Sure. And it's not even just necessarily across elections. It could even be across candidates. So, you know, um, the way that we currently uh, deal with the fact that it's hard to have an election among many people is that you have some parties and they nominate someone and, you know, then there's two candidates. But an alternative would be that you could vote in favor of or against all the candidates. And you could then let the candidate that people sort of on net most support bubble to the top. And that would sort of eliminate the need for this whole primary system and focus on particular parties and, and so forth.
0: So let's talk about like maybe something a little bit more specific, like a shareholder vote for in a company or something like public company or someone that has a bunch of different shareholder votes. Um, some of these are like binding shareholder votes. Some of them are non-binding shareholder votes. Like how could you imagine a system like this working in that kind of like more, let's say, micro environment?
1: Yeah. So uh, I'll give you a real example of a place where it is working right now, which is in hackathon voting in Taiwan. So um, there's a bunch of different projects that uh, civil society groups put together to get sort of the support of the public uh, and the public sector. And um, people have these credits. And rather than just like voting for the one thing they favor or, you know, approval voting, whatever. They actually get to say, no, this is really important. I really want to see the public support this. This may be a little bit, this more, uh, et cetera. And then they rank all of the projects based on that quadratic vote. And that's how they give out the prizes that then help people get support from local governments to fund these uh, ideas they have for air pollution or you know dealing with disability issues, et cetera
0: everyone in society is a judge or are there like a certain number of judges who who judge the hackathon project i want
1: anyone who's part of the v taiwan platform which is their civic democracy platform can participate and that's uh, half of the population is registered and a quarter are monthly active users
0: Okay. So, and then how does it work? So it's like you get like a hundred credits each and there's 15 different hackathon exactly. um, projects, and then you can allocate those credits accordingly or or
1: yeah. what do you mean by the rank order? So the people vote up and down on them and whoever gets the most net positive votes is like the first place. And and there's a second place winner, and so forth in the hackathon.
0: It's different than um, some sort of partial preference voting or something like that, where you're where you're you're ranking. Um, uh, you know, like in San Francisco elections, you have a partial preference voting in concept. Like, what are the big differences, and what what would like maybe a partial preference voting lead to that a quadratic voting would lead to something different?
1: Yeah, so partial preference um, basically tells you the order but it doesn't tell you how much you care so like it could be that like the first one you really like and everybody else you're basically indifferent mm-hmm. or it could be that the first three you really like and then you're indifferent across like it, it just doesn't really show you what actually matters to you it just shows you an order of the things right uh,
0: got it So one person one vote in a partial preference exactly what would be a simple a simplified version of quadratic voting is i get 100 votes uh, across these fifteen different teams, I could allocate some team zero. I could allocate one team all hundred if I really like it. Why the quadratic? Why is that so? So, so when
1: you do what you said, most people do exactly what you said. but they choose their favorite thing and they put everything on that. And that doesn't give you nearly as much information as when you have an incentive to put something on everything, but not everything on anything. Uh, you want to get not what's your favorite, but exactly how much do you like and dislike each of the options and that's exactly what quadratic voting draws out because the first vote is really cheap the you know second vote is more expensive the vote after that's more expensive so you don't want to ever put everything on one thing because that would be a waste but you also don't want to you know just be completely indifferent because you care more about certain things and this pulls out exactly how much you care about everything
0: Got it. And so, like, to basically to buy one vote, it costs, let's say, one credit. To buy two votes, it costs four credits. To buy three votes, it costs eight credits. Nine. Or how's Nine. It? Nine. Okay, got yeah. it. Okay. Um, and then and then it kind of scales out in four, sixteen, or something like that, and it kind of scales yeah, from there. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. Okay, so it's in this hackathon. Like, where else do you do you see this? It's obviously it's not going to like. United States is not going to change its presidential election tomorrow to this type of thing, or so. Where yeah. else? Do you, how do you see this? Evolving well, I'll tell you some of the or... other
1: applications that have been really exciting. So one is um, the most popular strategy game of all time, Civ Six. I don't know yeah. if any if you've ever played that uh, Civilization Six. Uh, it's the latest expansion pack for it. Gathering Storm uses this as its di- diplomatic voting mechanic. So when you're you've got these countries and they're like deciding on like global policies. They use these vote credits and quadratic voting to decide on, um, you know, like what the global policy is. So that's a game. It's a game played by like eight million people or something like that. So it's a pretty significant.
0: Yes. You're um, you're having all these. Obviously, you have all these people in Taiwan that are getting used to it. You have all these people playing like Civ Six that are getting used to it. Yeah. Um and so so if if this as, as more and more people like it over time, you could see a sense where how this could evolve into many, many other types of things, um, including maybe even things in our democracy or other ways that we're we're voting.
1: Well, the other thing I found quite remarkable about it is, and I didn't expect this honestly, we haven't had, as far as I can tell, and I love a counterexample, a single like negative experience where people using it like didn't think, well, wow, this is like an improvement over you know, what we were doing before. Yeah. Um, so, and, and like, that's pretty hard for anything in politics. Like politics is an area where like almost always there's like dissensus, the you know? And so that's been really a fun element of it. Um, Interesting. Colorado state government has been using it for a bunch of purposes. They've been using it to allocate the state budget uh, and to do make a lot of executive branch decisions.
0: Is there a way somehow you can bring this into like a prediction market? I it, You know, prediction markets tend to work pretty well like in the middle, but as you like get to the tails, they tend to have like weird um, things that go on. Could you imagine some sort of quadratic voting in a prediction market?
1: Absolutely. That's a great example. So it turns out that, um, so when you bet in a prediction market, if you like think it's more likely you bet on one side, if you think it's less likely you bet on the other, but you don't actually get people's probability estimate. You just get whether they're above or below the current number. Right, And so you then get some sort of weird weighted average of what everybody thinks, right? But you might not want a weird weighted average. You might want the median or you might want like some other statistic, right? Of what people think. And you can't get that out of the prediction market. All it gives you is this weird weighted average. And you can actually do a quadratic scoring rule to elicit people's full probability estimates. So what you basically do is you say, you can buy from me a um, you know $1 if this thing happens, but the amount that you pay is a quadratic cost. And it turns out then that the amount that people buy will always be their probability estimate. Now that requires some subsidies to run that market. You can't just like run that. But anyways, normal prediction markets do anyway, you need to put some liquidity in the market to make it work. But that's actually like a better way. Uh, I mean, it it elicits more total information to use that quadratic scoring rule.
0: Now, if you're going going opposite, let's say you're having like an auction system Um, you know, the classic would be like spectrum auction, the FCC doing spectrum auction. Like, is there some sort of way with quadratic voting where you could do a more fair spectrum auction or or some other type of system?
1: Well, so quadratic voting is really for collective decisions. It's for goods we all share, like information or, you know, know, public goods allocating public budgets. Um, Spectrum tends to be a little bit more of a private good. It's like something that you want to allocate to one person or the other. And there's actually like a, rather than quadratic voting, there's like a dual opposite system, which is this thing called the common ownership self-assessed tax or SALSA or there's different names for it, um, which is, it's not going to sound like quadratic voting, but there's a sense in which it's kind of like the opposite of quadratic voting or the reverse version. And what it is, is the system where you own assets, you self-assess the value of them, and you pay a tax based on that self-assessed value. But you have to stand ready to sell it to anyone at that price that you assess.
0: And why is that? I I understand the theory. Why is that the opposite of quadratic
1: voting? Because, well, it it basically, it is a it, it elicits truthfully that private value that you have on that thing in the same way that quadratic voting elicits a value you have on a collective good. And there's like this economic theory around the notion that. Money that comes out from taxes on on these private goods should be used to support those public goods. So there's a sense in which they form like a whole system uh, with each other. Okay. Now,
0: now you've recently proposed a system of quadratic funding, um, and I, I was having a little trouble kind of following it. So can you can you kind of help me walk through what exactly is quadratic funding, and then
1: like um, what are you trying to solve? What big problems you're trying to solve with it? Yeah. So the, the idea of quadratic funding is basically like, I think the spirit behind Kickstarter. So like, you know, Kickstarter is supposed to be a way of crowdfunding. It's supposed to be a democratic way of funding, but the problem is it's not really that democratic because like only certain people have a ton of money to, you know, give to certain things and and not to others. Right. And and similarly, like charity is like, you know, you can have a charitable funding thing, but ultimately it privileges the people who have the money to give away. Right. Um, Quadratic funding is a system uh, like that, but that's like much more genuinely democratic in character, but not for like egalitarian reasons, but to get at the issue that motivates Kickstarter in the first place, which is that there are public goods. There are these things we share. There's, you know, someone makes some T-shirt and like, sure, I can buy it. But like the main thing is that it was created in the first place. The game was created in the first place. The open source software was created in the first place. The journalism was created in the first place. Right. And in those contexts, there's what's called a free rider problem. So like, yeah. nobody wants to contribute because they think it'll get made anyway, or if it doesn't get made, they're not really going to push it over the edge anyway, and, and so forth. And so you don't contribute, even though you have a significant value for something. And the natural way to overcome that is through matching funds. Because if um, my contribution gets matched by everybody else, then I'm no longer like just free riding. I'm like deciding whether everybody's contributing, right? Yep. Yeah. And quadratic funding does that in an optimal way. It it basically matches every dollar that you give sort of inversely proportional to what a share of the community you are. So if you're a small share, then you really have a free rider problem, right? If you're like most of the support for this thing, then you don't have much of a free rider problem because you're capturing most of the benefits, right? And so what quadratic funding says is that you'll be matched sort of one for N where like n is like the number of people in the community, but not just number. If you're a like very small player, you'll get matched more. So it matches small contributions more than large ones to things that have many individual contributors, uh, more than to ones that have few individual contributors. And it does it according to this particular quadratic formula. That for the same reason in quadratic uh, voting is optimal
0: and you think you could make like could you make budgetary decisions with quadratic funding absolutely i mean that's
1: basically what they're doing in colorado effectively
0: could a company even like decide okay you know, we're going to make budgetary decisions or we're going to allocate capital based on this or and have the employees make decisions or,
1: or... yeah so I, I i can even go further in in that direction in a moment but but the simple way of doing it is to just say most companies have some divisions and they face a problem that the divisions don't always cooperate with each other right and that it's in the interest of the company to do that and one thing that you could do is you could allow like the divisions to spend funds out of their budgets to support things that they think are cross-cutting infrastructure but of course when they do that like they're not never going to like fund it enough that's the whole point right so you could have a matching pool that the company keeps in central headquarters and uses to match those infrastructure spend uh, by, you know, individual subdivisions, if one subdivision spends on it, it won't get any matching funds. But if multiple divisions are spending, then the headquarters will match.
0: And in fact, in f- so there's like, and it becomes like an internal lobbying, like, Hey, we all need this public good or something for all of exactly. us or, and this sort
1: of thing happens in companies anyway. So I mean, like my division at Microsoft is, I mean, I'm in the office of the CTO And like, basically what we do is an informal version of this. Like when there are cross-cutting pieces of infrastructure that different parts of the company need, we supply the matching funds to match the like, you know, um, investments that each of those parts of the company is making that we know that they wouldn't do on their own or would have trouble cooperating on. Um, But this gives a way of sort of formalizing and decentralizing that.
0: I've had many conversations with you over the years, um, and one of the more relevant ideas to our listeners is this idea of data digni- dignity, um, which, you know, is basically somewhat an idea where a person can like truly own their own data.
1: H- how do you envision that working? Well, so i I'm, one way I envision it working is that the term ownership is not quite right. Um, and the reason ownership's not right is that most data is interpersonal. So like this call that we're having right now is an interesting, you know, data stream. But is it yours or is it mine? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe we've signed some contract about it. Maybe it's yours and I send it to your podcast or whatever. But <laughs> but, the re- but the reality is most data is, is not created in such a strict, strict you know, contractual relationship. Yep. And certainly there's not reasonable power balances when those are worked out. And people are just like doing something socially. And that thing naturally sort of like collectively belongs to the people who are participating in that social relationship. You know, all the social graph data is like that. I mean, this is actually what caused the whole Cambridge Analytica thing was that, you know, my social graph belongs to me and it also belongs to you and so forth. Right. Um, and so I think that you need to have some infrastructure for that sort of collective management of those uh, data in order for there to be any meaningful concept of ownership. And that's this idea of data trust, data cooperatives, data um, uh, coalitions that has been circulating a lot and has played a really key role also in Taiwan and in, in some of the things they've been doing.
0: Why can't you just say like my data is owned by me and like why can't in this podcast why can't you say we both own the data that's collected here Um, and we're both having, you know, and, and it's fine and it's all good. And unless we stipulate otherwise, like that's kind of like how we're going to go about it. And you could like take the data with you and go to another podcast and you could still like, what, what is, what's
1: problematic with that problem is that you end up in a race to the bottom in that case, because basically whoever's willing to sell that information for the cheapest will sell it and undermine the other person's rights to it because data once sold is like, you know, the other data loses all its value effectively, right? And so if I think you're going to sell it, right, then I'll undercut you and you'll undercut me and I'll undercut you. And in the end, we got nothing, even though we both should sort of share that value together, right? Um, And uh, on the other hand, another rule that you could make rather than like everyone can do whatever they want with it is no, we can only do it if everyone consents, but then that completely gums up the market, right? So both of the extremes of like everyone can use it and like no one can use it unless everyone agrees don't work. You need something that's intermediate between those, which is where institutions like voting, quadratic voting, whatever come in is for making those decisions when you don't want either a race to a bottom or the whole thing to be gummed up.
0: In this case, you're talking about like, this is around an individual, not like a company stock price or or some some other type of data. You're talking about data that like, where you really feel like an individual has ownership of it.
1: Yeah, or what pertains to some individual, but many in many of the cases you talk about, you know, company stock price or, or um, traffic patterns or something like this, actually pertains to sort of the group of people who are participating in those traffic flows, right? Most data is actually neither impersonal nor personal. It's actually interpersonal. And that, yeah. I think, is one big mistake we made. And, and that's one reason why we see some of the, Dynamics that aren't working so well in, in, in these markets,
0: I think. How does it work? Like if we wanted to come, we, we do want to know collectively what the current stock price of Microsoft stock is trading for right now. Like if we're all interpersonally like managing that data and not allowing NASDAQ or whoever to 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 adjudicate that and give them the right to to kind of set a price or or at least publish those prices on it.
1: Like, how, how, does that, how does that world look in the future? Well, I mean, at some level, NASDAQ could be one of these organizations that does manage it. Like, there could be all sorts of organizations that manage its data. It doesn't make sense when you have collective management of something to just have everyone in some completely decentralized way doing it. We don't have direct democracy for most democracies. Like, you have some, you know, responsible fiduciaries who collectively represent a set of people. And those people have some voice in some way over the process, but it's not like they're deciding on everything, Um, you know. So uh, I'd like to see those institutions be more democratically accountable to the relevant people involved in some fashion. But um, ultimately, like you're going to have to have a fiduciary or manager, administrator, et cetera, of some form or some kind of AI that represents people sort of making decisions at high throughput uh, using them or... In Taiwan, they've been pioneering really interesting sort of fast and efficient deliberative democracy procedures that people can opt into. So that's another potential approach.
0: how, How do you figure out like what the, there might be certain things where, you know, there's these multiple parties involved, but then there's also the public that may have some sort of right to this data, or at least feel like they have a right to some portion of the data to help them. And it could be a very, very specific piece of data um, like you know, um, let's say a, a, a politician um, cheated on their spouse or something like that, and the public really feels like they have a right to know that data, even though maybe the politician doesn't want that person, you know, the, the 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 public to know that. How how do we how does that kind of work in these types of markets?
1: I mean, that's a that's a great uh, question. I mean, I think. That's almost kind of like some eminent domain type issue over data property, you know what I mean, or something. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I don't have an immediate prescriptive answer on that. I think it's probably um, somewhat analogous to what we do for public purposes, for other things, whether it be taxation um, of, of certain assets or you know, seizing private property for public use. Because
0: if you think of the New York Times, like it's just all it is is a data company with some pros around it. Right. It's uh, I mean, presumably it's it's news. So it's 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 publishing facts um, and then it's got a bunch of pros around that data, um, but but it's, it's not that different from Experian in many ways, um, it's got it's got core data that it's releasing every day. And, and and maybe they make some maybe there's some sort of editorial decision about what we release and what we don't release this we feel like is not, or this is too you know hot for national security. So we're gonna not release it or this we don't feel like we co- corroborate it in some sort of way. So we won't release it. But they're they're ba- essentially just a data company, right? We could we could distill down like any New York Times story into a collection of facts.
1: Well, Yes, and one issue with data always is that um, what data we choose to pay attention to is as important as the values that those data take on. Like the uh, classic example is like, you can look at these like, you know, ImageNet challenges and there will often be like a hundred categories of things. Um, like there's a dog and a baby and then there's a baby dog and like, what mm-hmm. is that? You know what I mean? And so like the, 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 like, um, ontology that the data has, uh, is, is like, at least as important, if not more important than like the values within that ontology. And so what narrative does is help shape that ontology, you know? And so yep. I think the, the New York, the, like data is kind of a funny thing because You know, you and I, we're having a very high throughput conversation. We're thinking through all these issues, et cetera. But then we're going to like go off and do stuff and design systems where people are going to like in quadratic voting, report a number or in your systems, like report a a, like position on the earth. And it's kind of like, there's a real asymmetry almost of power there, right? Like you and I have a respect for each other that we're understand. I'm not going to just say orange 17. And you're going to say back to, you know, me, 25 degrees north by 30, you know, it's like, you could say that to me, but it wouldn't be the greatest conversation. Right. right. But, but like, as designers, we have that high throughput, but then as observers, we, other people interact with us through this very low throughput, you know, method. Right. And um, anyway, uh, I, I think that that, like, what data really means as opposed to like overall communication is that sort of thin representation of reality, you know?
0: You've said many times, like we should treat data as labor. Like we, where does that analogy hold and where does it break down?
1: Uh, well, I think it 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 holds best in, as like a prescription. So like the, the notion is that I think we'll get better quality data if we get people actively aware of how their data is being used and contributing. Like I don't know if you know about the like Toyota manufacturing system and the whole Kaizen thing yep. before that and, and deming and they have this philosophy that if you like understand the process of production, that you'll like find problems in it and correct yep. them as you go through. All that. the way,
0: all the way through the different bottlenecks and stuff.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so I think that we're, um, we're sort of failing in that in the current data world. We don't uh, have people aware of what's going on with their data, and therefore they're not able to provide the additional value and adjustment. So like there was this video that leaked out, unfortunately, for Google a few years ago, which uh, showed this notion that like they thought of your um, data as their customer rather than you know you as their customer uh-huh. and that like uh basically if they wanted to know your weight rather than like asking you your weight they would just um like design a scale that like based on what they knew about your preferences would maximally appeal to you they would like pay for the amazon ad you know for that and then you'd buy the scale and then like they'd have your weight you know and it would be <laughs> somewhere in the terms and conditions right and um and like you know, in some level, like, it sounds really dishonest and creepy and whatever, but like more, I think more important than being dishonest and creepy is that it's just like incredibly wasteful. It's like, you actually knew your way. <laughs> you could have just asked you, right? And the, and the thing is, there's all sorts of things like that. It's like, we go and we have a bunch of pictures of birds and then we go and have someone label them. But like the person who took the picture of a bird was probably a birder in the first place. So like, why not get that person to label the data? You know what I mean? And, um, the, they, just like a, it's amazing how low quality data like we put up with because people like aren't engaged with the process of designing it. Or like, you know, you draw um, like, again, for like all these image net type things, there, you, you draw in all, all this information um, that comes from the context often of application of the method. And then it all becomes one giant data set. And then you train against the data set. But then it's like actual error on the application that it's interested in is like way higher because the overall distribution of the data was not the same as the context it came from. So why not like actually involve the people in the context that it came from so you get the right distribution of data so they're aware? It's just, it's this really weird thing where we've like sort of artificially backed into a problem of sort of surveillance when we could have had a problem of production. You know what I mean? And how do we
0: deal, I mean, like collectively, so one thing I'm super interested in is just like data about the weather. Um, and so for whatever reason, I've always been really interested about data about the weather. And one of the things is that data about the weather is is always extremely flawed. Um, because the collection mechanisms are are not calibrated, and you know, even literally, we could have a thermometer like on your house, and my house is right next to your house, and they could be off by many, many degrees. Because you know, mine might be in the shade, you might be more in the sun. Your thermometer might not work that well. Um, you know, there could be all these, and then of course you have all these other things like humidity and wind and all the other like, and it becomes really, really hard collectively to actually even know the truth. Like, how do we actually get to some sort of place where we can at
1: least have a better sense of what the truth is? Well, I think getting people actively involved in participating is, it can play a huge role in that. And they've really shown that in Taiwan. So they, um, ra- you know, in, in China, there's, there's a lot of pollution monitoring for obvious reasons. Um, and most of it is done by companies or by the government. But in Taiwan, what they did is that a bunch of people who were worried about pollution had IoT devices in their house just... Measuring air air pollution Um, and they got these people together into a civil society coalition of people who had these boxes and they basically said, look, we're going to invest in making sure that these are working, improving the quality, et cetera. And in exchange, we want the government to place boxes like this in certain places and monitor them. And so there's like a collective bargain there, basically, between the people who own the data and participating in the civil society coalition and the government. And they've really pioneered this model of data coalitions where they have people being active participants in data creation uh, and using it as leverage to get what they want from the state.
0: This this has been really great. I've got a couple of personal questions for you. I've known you for some time and I've always wanted to ask these. So this is a good good time to ask them. So I know you wear like a Star David around your neck. Yeah, um, maybe we can kind of see it here in the in the video if you're, for yeah. those of you watching the video. Um, and I remember you telling me that you kind of like refound Judaism at some point in your life from like being very, very secular. Like, yeah. like you've had this interesting religious evolution. What advice would you give to like a smart young person who, who also might be like struggling with this spirituality
1: decisions? I don't think I have a gr- great piece of advice to give. But what I would say is what affected me, I grew up in a, in like an atheist Jewish family. And I like had every like indoctrination and, and exposure to like universal values, like, you Uh know, humanism, blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, I did Unitarian stuff and, and so forth. And the thing that I came to realize is like most of the other people I met who had that same sort of like intersection of influences were also like, secular Jews from atheistic families. And so I realized like I was just kind of bullshitting myself by being like no, I don't come from anywhere. You know what I mean? Because I did come from somewhere and in fact like the very thing I was doing was a reflection of where I came from. You know what I mean? And um it was at that point that I realized that like you may not care about your culture and religion, but it cares about you. You know what I mean? It's like and and you ultimately are a product of where you're from. And um if you want to move beyond that, if you want to see beyond that, you can't just leave it behind and dismiss it. You have to embrace it and make something out of it. And, and that's not just true of religion for me. You know, I, I was an economist, but I don't really consider myself an economist anymore. I think there's a lot of things wrong with economics. I, I think I'm I'm very worried about what Israel is doing, but, but I love Israel. And, you know, I, I, I think the way that you actually transcend your attachments. Is by connecting them and making something of them, and not uh, ignoring them. And, and does, does that allow you to, in some
0: ways, like does that kind of philosophy allow you to almost be like more? I, I wouldn't say the word self-critical, but m- more real about like trying to understand yourself.
1: Yeah, I, I think what yourself is is ultimately a bunch of different social groups that you're a part of. Yeah, and and liberating yourself from them is not actually a way of um, understanding or improving on them. It's just a way of forgetting about it and, and therefore falling into the same traps, you know? Whereas if you actually take seriously where you're from and understand its strengths and its weaknesses and and work through those um, and, and, you know, make a commitment to take the good and the bad, uh, I, I think you get to a, healthier more growth mindset oriented place personally
0: another interesting thing i know about you is you you met your wife who i've met before when you were a freshman in college um which is nowadays you know not common especially for a secular jewish person yeah. um um what, you know, what advice would you give people about kind of love and partnership and is there and this is a data podcast so is there any way to apply data to any of these decisions
1: hmm. Um, you know, I think people mature in different ways at different times. Um, I I don't know if you were the same as me, but I matured intellectually much faster than I matured physically and socially. Uh Um, and that's meant that a lot of my growth along those dimensions has happened, you know, as it was in partnership with someone, you know, and there are pluses and minuses of that. Um, but ultimately I think that a huge part of relationships are are what you invest in them. And a huge part of beauty is what you um, pay attention to. Um, and so I, I hope that people um, will heed, I think the data that shows that the match quality uh, may not be as important as approaching things with the spirit of, looking into the other person you know
0: and got so there's um, some sort of bar obviously there's got to be some sort of bar that you've got to get above for match quality but then any but like once you get above that bar maybe it doesn't matter as much and it's the well, spirit and, of the, and the and other pro- things that, that are really important.
1: things with too much of an attitude of match quality i think um undermines your willingness and capacity to make the investment that I think really makes things God, work. so.
0: If you, like if you're doing some sort of quadratic voting to to get your mate, maybe that's not the best strategy or something. Or
1: <laughs> yeah, I think uh, relationships have a lot of complexity that eludes formalism, and I think that you know we should um, as much as possible like aim to make our formalisms capture more and more of that richness. That's, you know, what quadratic voting is taking a small step towards and other things I'm interested in is taking a small step towards, you know, in communications technology, we moved from like writing, which is like the like thinnest representation of what it is to talk to someone to this video conference and maybe we'll move to virtual reality and whatever. And I think in more and more areas of life we need to do that. We need to find a way to make our, you know, technologies and, and ways of interacting with each other at scale, mimic more of that richness of investment and commitment and, and, um, you know, interpersonal linkage that is possible in the type of conversations we're having and even more in a long-term relationship.
0: Oh, this is great. Okay, This is great. This is the last question we ask all of our guests, which is what would you've told yourself either like in college or in high school that would have saved yourself either just a ton of time or money or kind of some sort of emotional well-being. Like what advice could you, if you went to go back in time and tell Glenn something, what would you have told him? So
1: I, um, when I was writing my, uh, when I was working on my research, uh, initially when I was writing my thesis and so forth, um, the, the two things that I was focused on were, um, trying to apply machine learning in economics. This was like around 2006. So this is like before machine learning was a thing, you know, Uh and, um, and on, uh, the possibility that like, uh, financial market arbitrage would actually make things less uh, stable rather than more stable. Um, And at the time, both of those were like totally dismissed. It was like, you know, people were just laughing at like machine learning. They thought it was like, we've got econometrics, it's way better, et cetera. And and the people were like, you know, the markets are doing great, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I worked on other things. I like went down the like, you know, the, the path that got me praise because I had always been a really good student. I was always getting good grades. I, want, I, I got addicted to that praise. Um, and I sort of lost like six years of time that I could have been doing the stuff that was like really meaningful for the world to doing what was getting praise, you know, And then when quadratic voting and all this stuff came along, it came up with those things, those things got rejected too. But I didn't, you know, at that point I was like, screw this. Like if, if, if the importance of my ideas is inverse to their acceptability in my field, then I'm in the wrong field. You know what I mean? And, or I'm, or I'm, you know, seeking praise from the wrong people. So I, I think, um, having the courage to see that vision and to turn away from praise um, from you know a particular area, and and not just to in some individualistic way, but to look for outside of the narrow community that you're in, and to look to the other communities and see how they would how they make sense of things, and if you're able, to, I mean, because Quadratic Funding found its community, it just was a different community. You know, that uh, I, I wish I I had the but presence. That's obviously that. hard
0: to do because I mean, you you may have had a um, you know, quit your PhD program because there, you may have not been able to find anyone at a quote unquote establishment, you know, a uh, um, uh, university to have to have worked with, or, you know, you, you may have to, um, you know, completely, you may have to be okay with getting a C in class, which yes. does have some ramifications, right? As yeah. you're trying to get into grad school or other types of things that happen or get a job. And, and so these are, this, this is not a costless thing. To Absolutely. to basically Absolutely. go against the grain, like so, you can't always go against the grain. Sometimes you have to, you know, um, you, have to y- y- you have to stay on the
1: margin. You have to stay on the edge of the grain. I think is what you have to do. I think it's at those edges that things happen. The, the notion of escaping that doesn't work. Just like I said, you know, you can't escape from my Jewish heritage. I couldn't escape from that. I was thinking as, as an economist, yeah. but but like the real place that creativity flowers is at the, you know, the uh, edges of the continental plates, right? It's where things intersect, and where you see that something makes a certain amount of sense from a certain framework, but and makes a whole lot of sense from another framework that's usually opposite. And if you find something in between, you can just barely survive in both. But that's where things really take off. You know, how, how do you know like
0: when? Because is there some sort of heuristic to know? Okay, in this particular situation. I'm going to subvert my own feelings and just kind of go along. Um, and then there's this other situation where, I, um, where it's maybe more okay to be uh, heretic or, or more okay for me to go forward and, and be different from, from those around me. I,
1: I think it's, it, you get it by finding the other community and not by just going off on your own.
0: Ah, so looking for another community because it's, it's too scary. You can't be the Unabomber, right? Um, yeah. y- y- you've got to find some others to to be your allies,
1: essentially. Well, and, and, and you know, we talk about children becoming independent as they grow up, but they don't. They become dependent on different people, more people. That's yeah. how you form a new identity. It's, you know, that's the reason why the, you know, teenagers, as they become, quote, independent, are actually the ones most focused on peer pressure, right? Yeah. So it's by finding that other community It's not by breaking out on their own. And so I I think that that, that's the thing, you always have to ask yourself, if if this feels right here, right for some other reason, but doesn't quite fit in this world, is there another world that it fits into? And you know, for me, a lot of that's been the blockchain world. You know, I like went from the econ thing, the blockchain world did that. I'm super critical of the blockchain world too, because I always like living on the edges, you know? But, but it was that tension between the econ world and the blockchain world, you know, that, that gave me the ability to, to do a lot of what I've done. Awesome. This has been
0: really wonderful. Thank, thank you very much, Glenn. Please tell the audience where they can find out more about you,
1: Twitter, you know, et cetera. Great. So I'm at Glenn Wild personally, but also check out Radical Exchange, at Rad Exchange. Radical Exchange is a global social movement. We have 100 local chapters around the world, and we use these types of things to try to remake politics and the economy. Awesome. Thanks again. This has been great. Yeah. Thanks, Oren.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren. And we'd love to hear from you. World of Das is brought to you by SafeGraph.